0: Well, good morning, everybody. Please turn or click your buttons towards Hosea chapter 8. I'd like to begin and end today's uh, sermon with um, this prayer that was uh, uh, shown to me this, this week at um, a at class I'm taking on the Hebrew Bible, on the Old Testament. O holy and haunting presence whose spirit moves quietly but surely in the sound of fury of the world and of my life, you know me as rushing water knows the rock and releases its beauty to reflect new light. Open me to the insistent abrasiveness of your grace, for often I trivialize love by abandoning abandoning the struggles which accompany its joys and reflecting the challenges which lead to its fulfillments. Release me from the dark fury of assuming I am unloved when the day calls for sacrifice and the night for courage. Release me from the ominous fear of thinking some sin or failure of mine can separate me from you. When life demands hard choices and the battle high risks. Release me from the dangerous illusions of independence when the human family summons me to the realities and promises of interdependence among races, sexes, nations. Release me from being possessed by riches I do not need and grievances that, that weary me. When you call me to share my very self with neighbors, and to reflect for the world the light of the kingdom within me. Amen. So, uh, isn't it funny how the smallest thing sometimes can have the strongest impact, the strongest moments of your life can somehow leave these, like, incredibly deep, lasting impressions? I can think back to my, my wedding day and the birth of my son, And I remember these times that were of monumental significance in my life. For all of the preparation and anticipation that goes into such life-changing events, there are other times, conversations, events, that, that seem so inconsequential, but they haunt me and they force me to do business with my soul. I was 16 or 17 years old, and I was at school um, for one of the many performing arts groups that I was in in high school. Uh, in those days, in the latter years of high school, my goal was to join as many bands and choral groups and stage productions and uh, musicals and plays as much as I could. I just packed my schedule with it and left absolutely no time for like, inconsequential things like schoolwork. One day we were working at the school, and everybody's really busy, and there's a lot of things going on. I don't know whether it was a band thing, or a chorus thing, or a stage thing, or whatever it was, and and my girlfriend, my then-girlfriend at the time, her her mother tells me that she she forgot something in her car. Um, This normal, everyday event, something as insignificant as someone accidentally leaving something in their car, turned into a life moment for me. When she, in the midst of this busy day, thought nothing of it, but casually handed me her car keys and asked me to retrieve the item. Can you go out to the car and get the thing? It's probably in the glove compartment. You may need to open up the back hatch. It might be in there. Root around a little bit. Thanks, Joe. Now, it just so happens this particular woman was a woman that I had a great deal of respect a devoutly Christian woman, if that's of any consequence. But, but as I'm walking to the parking lot, I felt God saying to me, don't, don't ignore this. Think about what just happened. Not only does she trust you enough to get the thing from the car, she didn't think twice about it, not at least that you saw. It was natural of her to hand you her car keys and trust you. Again, it seems so simple, but items like our keys and our wallets and our phones, these, things are, these are things that hardly ever leave our possession. And, and rarely do they go into the hands of others, um, even if we do trust them. If I just ask you to like, hey guys, just start passing around your keys and your wallets and your phone, like there'd be some hesitation. And even in this room among our family, um, this simple task struck me as not something I would normally be asked to do with people who weren't a part of my family. There was something that felt warm about it. To know that you have even just a little bit of trust makes you feel like you're a part of something larger. To be trusted is a sign that you're connecting with others in a proper way, that you aren't just living a life of complete isolation and shielding yourself from the rest of the world. No, You've made a connection, and there's fruit there to be tasted. Your parents ask you to watch a younger sibling for the first time. Your friend asks you to drive the car. Your boss gives you the keys to the office, normal experiences of trust. Let's turn up the volume. Your spouse trusts you with their sexuality. Your kids trust you with their nightmares. Your parents trust you with the waning years of their life. The world needs trust. To live without it is a cold, self-serving existence. And when trust is broken, it requires repair. In those moments when we feel we've betrayed someone who trusted us, it's like a weight on our soul. Our sin has not only damage the relationship between two people, it's also robbed the world of the good that would have come from that relationship of trust. Remember, the world needs trust. And when we, through our own self-serving, sinful, selfish, narrow-minded behavior, place our desires above integrity, it does more damage than we could ever possibly realize. Do you remember what it felt like when you were a kid and you, and you did something wrong? Maybe you drew on the floor like I did, or or maybe you cut up the curtains, I didn't do that, but just because you maybe thought it would be fun. Um, you told lies that you didn't even need to tell, you just told them. And then your parents look at you, and they you can tell that, that you've lost their trust, and they say something to the effect of, I just can't trust you right now. And it just, your soul drops as those words weigh heavy on, as you face the consequence of your actions. Our text for this morning, Hosea 8, is language that speaks of the consequences of broken trust. The book of Hosea is a fascinating piece of ancient prophecy that connects Hosea's own call by God to marry an unfaithful wife with a larger, of pic, a larger picture of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's response. In the second verse of the chapter, we find these words, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom.'" For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, I'm reading from the NRSV. It's the version that they've asked me to use at school, so that's the version I've been reading lately. The King James and the English Standard Version use the word whoredom as well. The NIV just says promiscuous woman or, and uh, adulterous wife. Other translations use the word harlotry or fornication or simply just prostitution. Here's the thing. I think it's supposed to sting a little bit. Chapter after chapter, Hosea lays out the lament of broken trust, the lament of unfaithfulness. The covenant between Israel and their God has been broken by people who have turned to sexual gratification, to religious idolatry, over their call to justice and mercy and worship of the only God who delivered them. From the darkness of slavery and oppression, the very people who were called blessed to be a blessing, a kingdom of priests, these people who were God's rescue mission for the world have now gone completely in the opposite direction. It's not just that they've given in to sinful desires and made mistakes. The the biblical narrative is, is full of that. Again and again, the story of the Bible shows us these continuing cycles of sinful consequences. God sets up a holy situation with a holy people and a holy calling. He, plays, he says, play by my rules and you'll do well. Not only will you do well for yourself, but you'll do well by blessing others. Just remember that I'm God, you're not. Great. And then what happens? The people disobey. And the consequence of their disobedience is some form of disaster or an impossible situation from which only God could deliver them. Sometimes these consequences are direct punishments from, uh, from God. Uh, most of the time they're executed by some other person, people, or power. And then God delivers them. He remembers his part of the relationship and sets the people back on the right track. Things are good for a little while and then the whole thing starts Again, So when the translators of the book of Hosea use a word like whore to describe the relationship between God and his people, yeah, it's supposed to sting a little bit. And the truth is, as you wrestle with this test, text, you'll begin to feel that it's not just about them then, it is about us now. As Hosea feels distraught with pain and suffering over this broken relationship with a wife who prefers the bed of others to the home where she belongs, God uses that pain to speak through Hosea about a broken relationship between Israel and God. We've seen so far seven chapters that seem to intentionally weave these two lines of pain together, and it's, at times, it's hard to distinguish between the two. In chapter 8, we hear about the storm of consequences Israel will face Set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have broken my covenant and transgressed my law. Israel cries to me, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. Raise the alarm. The people of Israel have broken their end of the covenant and transgressed against the law God gave them. Now the enemy is on the way. The vulture, the eagle here in the verse probably refers to the the Assyrians, the superpower that God will use to execute vengeance on Israel. The Assyrians had a skilled army with weapons of iron and advanced military techniques that they used to decimate their enemies. In the 8th century, King Sargon II described his conquest of Babylon like this. He says, I blew like an onrush of a hurricane and enveloped the city like a fog. I did not spare his mighty warriors, young or old, but filled the city square with his corpses. Verse 4, they shall not pour drink, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but without, without my knowledge. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Oh, that one stings. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel an artisan made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Political authority, religious authority, where does that come from? Did you really think that you could just set up these rulers, these idols, without God being a part of their equation? I see you've set up royalty without my knowledge, who have used their silver and gold to craft idols that will ultimately be their own destruction. Who makes all of this? The hands of some guy? The hands of an artisan? A man? Not the guiding hand of God. No matter how richly detailed... This calf idol is at best it can only ever be an item idol uh, an item built by man as something will get in the way of a relationship with God. The Bible has lots to say about artisans using their skills to craft item for God's glory. You can read chapters and chapters in Torah where god's uh, God describes how to build things like the temple um, but he does that through his people as a way of showing that He is God, and that God, in his entire splendor, is quite literally at the center of his people. And as his people travel, so God does. Instead, you've allowed people in positions and authority, positions of authority, who have no business being in positions of authority, to craft idols that you worship instead of God. God's system was such that he alone determines who should be king, either by divine revelation or by prophecy of some sort. Picking up in verse 7, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no meal. If it were to yield, foreigners would devour it. Israel is swallowed up, now they are among the nations as a useless vessel. Now they're among the nations as a useless vessel. For they've gone up to Assyria, a wild ass wandering alone. Ephraim has bargained for lovers, though they bargain with the nations. I will now gather them up. Soon they will writhe under the burden of kings and priests. Wind, in the scriptures, such as Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, is a symbol of useless vanity and futility. And this text turns that idea kind of on its head. When you sow the wind you reap the whirlwind. When you speak. spend your life pursuing vanity in these futile efforts, not only will you taste God's best for you, not only will you not taste God's best for you, but instead, you're going to suffer a whirlwind of damage. Again, when we refuse to play by God's rules and make the rules up as we go, it's not only unfulfilling, it will ultimately devour us and hinder us from playing the part As God envisioned, this nation that was chosen to be God's blessing to the world is now described as a useless vessel, a wild ass wandering alone, but will be swallowed up by the powers of the day. The hope for an abundant harvest has yielded nothing more than the wind. Verse 11, when Ephraim multiplied altars to expiate sin, they became altars to him for sinning. Though I write for him the multitude of my instructions, they are regarded as a strange thing. Though they offer choice sacrifices, though they eat flesh, the Lord doesn't accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will set fire upon those cities, and it shall devour his strongholds. Those things you once looked to as reminders of God's justice and mercy have instead been turned into instruments of sin, Those sacred writings that were at once so important to you and so precious to you, those things, those writings that gave you the identity as God's people, God's chosen people, have now become this strange thing. Those sacrifices you once offered to God as the first fruits of your labor, the best of your time, talent, and treasure, God doesn't accept them. God will deal severely with your iniquities, and punish your sin, because you have forgotten that he is God, and you are not. Israel forgot that God was their deliverer, and now a destruction will, with, um, will return them to their knees, to a place where they remember who really is in charge. The history books tell us that, that the advanced army techniques, the advanced military techniques of the Assyrians... Allowed them to efficiently penetrate even the most strongly fortified cities. But now those palaces built by Israel, those fortified cities built by Judah, will fall apart like the broken idols that they are. They'll fall apart. They'll burn and they'll be devoured. When you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. One of the phrases that stuck with me as I read through the commentaries on this was this phrase, outrageously foolish disobedience. Israel has invited their own doom through idolatry and sexual promiscuity, inappropriate relationships with neighboring societies, and forgetting who they were and who God is. As such, they will suffer the consequences in return to oppression. God has not turned his back on his people. One of the most encouraging elements of this text for us is that we know that we know where the story is headed. We know that this isn't the only chapter in the Bible, thank God. The Lord made this world and knows far better than we could ever imagine how he plans to renew it, how he plans to renew it. Our God is to trust him with that. And three notes as we close. First, that phrase, outrageously foolish disobedience. There are times in our lives, times in my life certainly, where I lose track of the story that I'm a part of. I stumble through sin, through lust and greed at times. Um, We place our own personal narrative above the redemptive narrative that God is telling. The New New Testament tells us that if we um, confess our sins that he is faithful and just and will cleanse us of unrighteousness. But Hosea's text again, it isn't just about them then, and it's about us now, then my guess is that this text isn't just simply about our own personal sin. It's about a larger picture of Israel's outrageously foolish disobedience. God has chosen to speak to the people of Israel, his people. God, God has chosen to speak about Israel and use a word like whore, That's supposed to sting because it's supposed to remind us that we can lose our way so severely that we completely lose track of what gives us our identity. Israel's identity was supposed to be rooted in God, in the law that he gave them, and the call that was their responsibility. This text makes it seem like these weren't inevitable stumbles. These were intentional moves away from God. Through Israel, God would ultimately bless all the nations of earth through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it is through Him that we find our identity. And it is through Jesus that we find our place in God. Friends, I challenge you to do inventory with God right now and ask Him to show you any way that you've gone completely off message. Are there habits activities, substances, websites, that the only way to best describe them would be outrageously foolish disobedience. Not just because they break God's law, that's bad enough, but because they break you, and they break the people that you care about. If there is, then it will be helpful to know a second point. One of the accusations from God in Hosea 8 was that they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but without my knowledge. If you're here this morning and you've never heard this before, please hear it now. God gives kings to people. They don't choose them. We don't choose them. And he has given us the only king we'll ever need, Jesus. He is our master, and it is in his kingdom that we seek first. Gabriel told Mary that she'd bring forth a son and he said, He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Seeking first his kingdom is the way that we ensure that we haven't gone completely off message in an outrageously foolish way. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the king, the savior, the master, the center of your life? Or is he just the person that we often bring up on Sunday morning? If he is the Lord of your life, then one last point. He has called us to do more than sow the wind, he has called us to be more than a useless vessel. Some of his final words recorded in the scriptures speak of the call we have to be his people to a starving world. Matthew tells us that um, the words of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all I've commanded, and I'll be with you until the end of the age. Similarly, in Acts, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are not commands. God gives to useless vessels. He gives them to men and women whom he loves to death and in whom he desires to reach the world. We are called to reflect for the world the light of the kingdom within us. We pray. holy and haunting presence, whose spirit moves quietly but surely in the sound and fury of the world and in my life. You know me as rushing water knows the rock and releases its beauty to reflect new light. Open me to the insistent abrasiveness of your grace For often I trivialize love by abandoning the struggles which accompany its joys and rejecting the challenges which lead to its fulfillment. Release me from the dark fury of assuming that I am unloved when the day calls for sacrifice and the night for courage. Release me from the ominous fear of thinking that some sin or failure of mine can separate me from you when life demands hard choices and the battle high risks. Release me from the dangerous illusions of independence when human, the human family summons me to the realities and promises of interdependence among races, sexes, and nations. Release me from being possessed by riches I do not need and grievance, grievances I, that weary me When you call me to share my very self with neighbors and to reflect for the world the light of the kingdom within.